0: Let's turn our attention then to the Bible, to Mark chapter 12. If you want a title for this morning's message, I've got it One Step Closer. Now we have to understand as we get to this text today that we are now in the last week of Jesus' life. Chapter 10, verse 32, we see that Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. He's now very clearly on his way to Jerusalem to go and give his life away as a ransom for many. And on the Sunday then, before he does that, the Sunday before the Good Friday, five days before he dies, he then triumphantly enters into Jerusalem on the back of a lowly donkey. See, in truth, it's less of a triumphal entry and more of a death march into Jerusalem. The crowd are going wild, they're going crazy crazy singing songs of Hosanna, the son of David, and it looks like they're really welcoming Jesus, thinking he's amazing. But actually, they don't know who Jesus is. Some people think he's the Messiah, but they also think that he's the Messiah that's going to get into Jerusalem, kick out the Romans, and then we're going to start ruling the world from Jerusalem again as Jews. Other people haven't got a clue who Jesus is. But they're all singing these songs because it's a time of festivity in Jerusalem at this time. They always sing these songs to every pilgrim that comes past, they sing these songs to. How ironic then that this one walking past, at least sitting on the donkey walking past, actually is the one they're singing about. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Like it had been prophesied in Zechariah 9, verse 9, Jesus did now indeed come on the back of a donkey and into Jerusalem. And then that evening on the Sunday, he goes into the temple and no one cares. No one knows who he is. And you have this eerie moment there where Jesus, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, stands in the temple and no one even comes to say hello. And he leaves and goes back to Bethany. Well on the Monday he then goes back to the temple and we learn that zeal for his father's house consumes him because he cleanses the temple. The temple is the home of where God would meet with his people. It's the very center of Israel tradition and understanding. It's the place where God would meet with his people and be with his people, his very own. And yet this place has become a den of robbers. And so zeal for his father's house consumes Jesus. He begins to create a whip made out of courts and he begins to drive people out. Drive people out who had sold and people who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturns the table of the money changers, the seats of those who sell pigeons. He stops people carrying people through in the temple. Imagine the scene: this massive temple court, about three lengths of a football field, about 229 meters wide. A huge temple court with massive pillars lining the temple as far as you can see, wonderful stone throughout, and Jesus is going around kicking everybody out. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders, they're kicking off about it. They are furious that he would do this, and yet they don't say anything to him on the Monday, afraid that the crowd might step in, and they don't understand what the crowd might do. They just stand back. But on the Tuesday... When Jesus then once again enters the temple, having cursed a fig tree and seen this fig tree wither, when Jesus on the Tuesday enters the temple, the religious elite then confront him. There they are in their white gowns, the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees, a great group of them, as he enters the table at temple, they all come to him and they start to question him. Chapter 11, verse 28, we read, And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? They're in effect saying, How dare you? Who do you think you are coming into our temple, changing our traditions, and kicking people out of our temple? How dare you? Who do you think you are, and on what authority do you do that? Well, he silences them very carefully and cleverly with a question. He says to them in verse 30, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? As is typical of rabbis, he answers their question with a question, and he totally silences them. This big crowd of scribes and Pharisees and elders, they know in this moment if they say, well, the authority of John the Baptist was clearly from God. They know if they say that, Then surely then this is the Messiah, this is the one they've been waiting for, and the crowds will surely take Jesus even now and make him king. So they can't say that. But if they say, Well, John the Baptist must have been from man, his authority must have been from man, then the crowd will no doubt grab them in this moment and stone them, because the crowd believe that John the Baptist is a prophet. So they say, Oh, we don't know. It's pathetic. They're just covering themselves. And so Jesus then, having silenced them, well, he hasn't finished with them. In chapter 12, verse 1 to 12, he still addresses these scribes and Pharisees and elders. This is what he says to them. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress. And built a tower and leased it to the tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Yet he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. and went away. Let's pray. Lord, you're so kind in the way you preserved your word for us so that today we can look on and feel as if we're there. Lord, would you give us eyes to see this morning your wonderful word. Would we see and behold the glories of what you're saying here, not only in the parable, but in the message. Lord, help us to see something only you can do. So Holy Spirit, have your way in us. Help us to see your Son. Amen. Philip Ryken, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and now author, scholar and president of Wheaton College one well, said the following about jesus and indeed then this parable before us today he says jesus of nazareth is the greatest storyteller who ever lived the prince of parables none of his stories are longer than a page and yet every last one of them is a perfect masterpiece and yet with every story he told our Saviour also took one step closer to the cross. For it was the last week of his life on earth. And Jesus then told a gospel parable about the cross and the judgment to come. My friends, I cannot improve upon that statement and that prelude to this passage and parable that we have before us today. Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the greatest storyteller who ever lived. He was the prince of parables. Each of the stories he told, they're they're short in length, but they're masterpieces. And the way he communicates and talks, he's the greatest prince of parables that you've ever seen or ever come across in your life. And yet, with each story he tells, he very vividly takes one step closer to the cross. And here in this parable, Without any doubt at all, he takes one momentous step forward towards the cross. See, this parable before us today, in effect, becomes Jesus' fourth prediction about his suffering and his death. This is the fourth time he explains what is going to happen to him. In Jerusalem and in his suffering and in his death. And this fourth prediction in the form of a parable uniquely propels him one step closer to his death. So this morning I want us to examine then this unique step. What is it about this step that makes it so unique? What is it about this particular parable... That makes this step so significant and indeed unique. And as we examine it, as we examine this parable together, I want us to marvel together at the many sobering and sweet surprises that are contained within it. Because there are surprises. There are surprises that should affect the soul and heart of each and every one of us in the room. Because this is emotive in its significance. And it can change our lives. So I have two points this morning. And here's the first. Number one, the significance of the parable. The significance of the parable itself. I mean, it's been a while now since we've heard Jesus speak in parables, isn't it? The last time we heard Jesus speak in a parable was Mark chapter 4. Eight chapters before now. He's talking about the parable of the sower. This sower who spreads his seed sparing, unsparingly, he just lays it out, and then it falls on different soils, and the seed responds differently depending on which soil it's gone into. That's the last time Jesus has talked in a significant way through a parable to anybody who would listen. And yet suddenly and unexpectedly, Jesus breaks into another parable here in chapter 12. And one of the questions we should be asking ourselves as we come across that is Why? There's been all this talk in between, there's been no parables, but why has he come all the way back now to another parable? See James Edwards in his commentary helpfully notes the following. He says, this chapter 12 parable is the only major parable outside of chapter 4 in the Gospel of Mark, and the unique placement then of the parable should alert us to its significance. So it should. Mark has no words that are out of place. There's nothing out of place in the way Mark is reporting to this. And so the very fact that it's here, having had such a long break of parables, should alert us to its uniqueness and its significance. And it is significant. It's significant in a number of ways. First and foremostly, it's significant in its timing and in its immediate audience. I mean, all the other three previous predictions... About Jesus' suffering and his death in chapters eight through ten, where are they where where do they happen? They all happen in private, and they all happen in closed room conversations with his disciples. He's training his disciples, he's preparing his disciples for what is going to happen to him when he's in Jerusalem. So they're closed room conversations, private conversations that are preparatory for specifically his disciples. See, for the last three years, prior to this week of Jesus' life, Jesus' messianic identity has been shrouded in secrecy throughout. And so demons have come out of people. He's been there in the the synagogue, praying for people, talking to people, and demons have manifested. And one of the first words the demons say is, We know who you are. And he tells them each and every time to shut up and tell no one. He heals people, and people want to just go around telling, telling everybody, this is what's happened, he's healed me. This must be the Messiah. And each and every time, Jesus said, hey, you're healed. Go your way and tell no one. For three years, the messianic identity of Jesus have been shrouded in mystery. And so all three predictions of Jesus' death and suffering prior to this moment have all been just with his disciples to prepare them in a very private way. And yet this prediction... Is very different. This prediction is loud. This prediction is intense. And it is loud and it is intense because this is his time. It wasn't his time to die before. But now it is his time. And so as he stands there in the temple courts three days before he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. He's being addressed by the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders, the very people that he says he will die in the hands of. And knowing then this is his time, he predicts to the very men that are going to kill him what they're going to do to him. This is hugely significant in timing and indeed original audience. In chapter 8 verse 31, Jesus' first prediction, this is what he says to his disciples. He says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. They don't get it. They want to chat about who the greatest is, where they're going to sit in the kingdom. But Jesus told them very clearly, this is what's going to happen to me. In Jerusalem and so we should not be surprised then in chapter 11 verse 27 when we read and they came again to Jerusalem meaning Jesus and as he was walking in the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him this is his time this is a time when he's going to give his life away as a ransom for many. These are the very men who, humanly speaking, will bring about his crucifixion and death. And so he addresses them. This isn't behind closed doors. This isn't private. This is confrontational. This is intense. This great band of men before him, all in white robes, with the great backdrop of the temple court behind him, and he's going toe-to-toe with them, telling him, telling them, and in that you're the guys that are going to kill me. It's hugely significant in its timing and its immediate audience. And it's also significant in terms of its content, what the message actually is. See, there's no doubt that this parable, as you examine it, it is crystal clear in its allegory. Okay, all parables are allegories, all right? They tell you pictures of things that actually point to something else. And so we see the parable of the sower and the seed and the soil. And often as we're looking at it, you think, I have no idea what he's really talking about. And so then what he does in the Gospel of Mark is the disciples ask Jesus, what are you talking about? And he tells them exactly what he's talking about. Okay, well, this is the sower, and this is the seed, and this is the soil. he explains for them because it's an allegory that needs explaining. And yet this allegory is crystal clear. Jesus doesn't need to explain it. It's obvious who it is. I mean, one of my favorite series that I've told you about before is Band of Brothers. I love Band of Brothers. Whenever I feel bad about life, I watch Band of Brothers and I feel a lot better about life. Um, there's just certain parts in there you just think, man, that's awful, that is just horrendous. It looks so cold for days and wet. Okay, well, I'm going to the beach, I feel better about life. You know, there's just these scenes in it, you just think it's so good. And one of the things that I like about Band of Brothers is before each episode, they interview an old guy or a number of old guys and they're talking about the war. And I'm a bit slow. So I'm watching these series all the way different through, different things are happening. And you're seeing these old guys, and then you're watching the series, and you're seeing these old guys watching the series. And in the very last episode, they start to interview these old guys. And for the first time, underneath these old guys' pictures, they put their names. And what you realize is these old guys are the men that have been depicted all the way through. They are Colonel Winters, and they are Joey, and they are Matthew. They're the very men that the whole series has been about. And it just brings the whole thing to life where you realise, man, they're telling their story. This is the retelling of what they went through as the 101st Airborne in the Second World War. It's amazing. It brings it to life. Well, if this parable worked like that, it would be very obvious to every single one of us who these characters are. Because it's crystal clear in its allegory. And so the man, the landowner, the landowner of the vineyard in verse 1, well, he's God the Father, the creator of all, the one who made all things and oversees the land. The vineyard, well, that was Israel. All the way through the Bible, and in particular Isaiah chapter 5, we see Israel represented as a vineyard. And so Israel itself always knew all the time, whenever they're we talking about a vineyard in the Bible, hey, that's us, that's, that's me. The tenants. Well, the tenants, who are they? They're the chief priests. And the scribes and the elders, the very people that Jesus is addressing in this moment. The servants. Well, they're the prophets. They're the people that the landowner, the father has sent to try and get fruit from the vineyard. And then the beloved son, that's Jesus, it's the one telling the story. So it's crystal clear in its allegory, and because of that, it's then crystal clear in its meaning, because here's what's happening here. Remarkably, what Jesus is doing in just a few words is telling the entire story of Israel's history just a few words, Jesus is telling us about Israel's relationship with God, well, the way it's always been and the way it is now. And in particularly then, he's telling us about the grievous and wicked role that the tenants, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders have played in it. The very men who he's now addressing in the temple courts. It's amazing. Look with me then at verse 1. Let's examine it together and enjoy it together. It says, "And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country." Verse 1 then describes a scene that would have been very familiar to the original audience. The vineyard Well, they knew that that was referring to Israel, and it was a familiar scene in all of Palestine. I had the privilege of going to Malta um, a long time ago, about 20-something years ago, and in Malta, one of the things that you you realize pretty quickly as you go on different trips is there are vineyards everywhere. Given the climate and given the soil, it's just perfect for vineyards. You go to Italy, it's obviously exactly the same. Well, Palestine is the same. Because of the heat and because of the soil, there are vineyards everywhere. And so when he starts giving a parable about a vineyard, everybody knows exactly what he's talking about. And they know exactly that, oh, this is us. Israel is the vineyard. And yet he pays particular attention about the landowner, the owner of the vineyard. Because what becomes clear is this landowner, this father, God himself has demonstrated great care in the establishment of this vineyard. And we see him planting the vineyard. Notice the great attention to detail that the landowner is giving this vineyard. He puts a fence around it and digs a pit for the wine press, and builds a tower. This landowner loves the vineyard. He prepares the vineyard. He planted the vineyard. He gives the vineyard all that they need. And there's an expression of his care towards the vineyard He even gives the vineyard tenants, scribes and Pharisees and elders to care for the vineyard, to care for Israel, to look after them, to nourish them, to cherish them, to teach them, to oversee his people. And yet in verses 2 through 5, what we realize very quickly is we see that all is not well in the vineyard and the landowner knows it. The landowner knows that all is not well in the vineyard, so he sends a series of servants to the vineyard to try and get fruit from the vineyard, to try and nourish it and help them. And yet grievously the tenants, the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders, show increasing brutality towards these servants, towards these prophets. Some are beaten, some are treated shamefully, Some are even killed. And yet this landowner who loves the vineyard Israel is unusually forbearing and long-suffering and he really loves Israel. And so he wants to send another into the vineyard. We see him in verse 6. Look with me. And yet he had still one other a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them saying they will respect my son. His Landover has sent many servants. He has many servants. But he only has one son. There are many servants but just one unique, beloved, much loved son. And yet he loves the vineyard. And so he sends his son as a representative of the owner with the authority of the owner and surely they will respect his son, right? He's the heir of the very owner of the vineyard and yet respect him they don't. Verse 7 But those tenants said to one another this is the heir come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The tenants themselves assume that if they murder the son, they will finally be free to take possession of the vineyard. And so they take him and kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. My friends, you can't help But imagine the scene. I want you to live the scene. You can't help but feel the drama when you live the scene. The great temple courts. Jesus has just yesterday ruined the temple by driving out all the, the den of robbers that are there. People that are selling pigeons, exchanging money. The very people that run the temple, the tenants, The Pharisees, the scribes, the elders are now coming out on force to greet Jesus and he stands and leans into them and tells them this story. You can't help but imagine the drama that is taking place here. It's quite clearly he's talking about them. And then he asks them a series of two rhetorical questions. He looks at these chief priests and the scribes and the elders right into their eyes and he says to them, verse 9... What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he doesn't give him a chance to answer. they think about it. He's going to tell them exactly what the owner of the vineyard is going to do. He says he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. I can't help but think that as he says he will give the vineyard to others, he looks around at that point and looks at his disciples this group of ragamuffin guys, this group of tradies that are like, you know, just only me having a go. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do. The scribes and the Pharisees and the elders that have run the temple and run Israel for all of history, the temple is now going to become Jesus himself. All those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior now have access to the Father and a new temple is going to be built, namely the church, and it's going to be built on the back of these 12 tradies. What's the Pharisees been thinking? What do you mean? You're going to be taking it on off us and give it to them. He still hasn't finished with them. In verse 10, he gives them another question. Have you not read this scripture? (laughs) Of course they've read this scripture. They would have memorized this scripture. These are the big wigs of the day. This is the mighty Sanhedrin. These are the, the best of the best. And Jesus knows that, but he also knows, but you don't get it. You've read it, but you do not observe. You simply do not understand that it's talking about me. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He quotes for them there. He comes out of the parable and quotes Psalm 118, verse 22 through 23. A predictive sign, a prophetic psalm of how the true cornerstone of the new temple to come will be rejected by the builders. He will be removed by the builders and yet in actual effect, he will be the cornerstone to the entirety of the temple. He will be the capstone, the most important stone of all. You know, you would have thought at this moment that surely these religious leaders, even now then, realising surely you are the king, realising he's talking about us. We can't reject the cornerstone. We can't reject the capstone. We have in our hands killed the prophets that went before, but this is the landowner's son. You would have thought that surely even now they would hit their knees, repent of their sin cry out for mercy and put their faith in him as their king, the one they've always been waiting for. But they don't. It's clear from verse 12 that they do understand. It says, For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. That's unique and miraculous in and of itself. Because in chapter 4, we get to understand that parables... For Christians, for believers, for those that are humble, well, they're revealed. But for unbelievers, for outsiders, they're concealed. They don't make any sense. And yet these guys, who are clearly outsiders, do understand. They perceive, you're talking about us. We're the tenants. You're the son. The landowner is the father. You would assume that even now they would hit their knees. They would sympathize with the plight of the landowner. They would repent, take Jesus as their king, and bow their knee to him. But grievously, they don't. They harden their hearts even more to him. And we read in verse 12 if it wasn't for the crowd in this moment, they would arrest him now because they want him dead. How dare he come into our temple and say that? They hate everything he stands for. And in just three days' time, then they will look and find a betrayer, one Judas Iscariot, who himself will see Jesus being put into death. The only thing that restrains these men in this moment is the fear of the crowd around them. Peter Bolt, in his book, The Cross from a Distance, says it this way. says, these men recognise that the parable speaks to them, and yet sadly, ironically, They are then all the more eager to kill him. How true that is. They understand that the parable is about them. They have growing understanding that he is the son of the landowner. Sadly and ironically, they want to kill him then all the more. They want to get him and see him removed for all eternity. And so Jesus now finds himself fully knowing that he would one step closer to the cross because the very thing he's just predicted. Even now these scribes and Pharisees and elders are considering how can we arrest him and see him killed. This parable then is hugely significant. It's significant in its timing It's significant in its immediate audience of the religious elite. and It's hugely significant in its content as Jesus prophesies exactly what's going to happen to him in just a few days' time. And what I don't want us to miss in the midst of that is also the significance of the Father and the Son, which is my second point. The significance of the Father and the Son. And I don't want us to miss this. See, I think it's so easy in the drama and poise of all that is taking place here to miss the significance of the Father and the Son in this story. It's so easy in the drama and the poise of all that is taking place to see yourself in the courts with Jesus going toe-to-toe with a religious elite, with the disciples looking on as they usually do, probably just kind of watching, not quite sure what to say. And get overtaken by the drama of it and yet miss the heart and emotion of what Jesus is sharing here that is life changing not only for these disciples but for all of us. And it's the significance of the Father and of the Son in the story. And when you see it, you see what the parable is about. Because here's what the parable is about. this parable is about the incredible and personal love of the Father and Son for us. That's what this parable is about. The incredible and personal love of the Father and the Son for you and for me. I don't want you to miss this. Because if we leave this room this morning unaffected by what this parable really discloses to us about the way God feels about us, then we've missed the point of Mark chapter 12. Look with me then, first of all, at the love of the Father. And look with me at verse 6 again. Don't miss this. Because this is one of the most precious verses in all of the Bible. It says, and he, and he had still one other. A beloved son. The landowner saw that all was falling apart. He had seen what's happened to the servants. But he loves the vineyard. And he had still one other, a beloved son. And so finally, he sent him to them. My friends, herein is love. At the right time, the father sent his son for us. It's staggering. We didn't deserve it. We didn't ask for it. We were busy wrecking the vineyard unaffected by anybody that owned this land, uninterested by anybody who owned this land. And at the right time, the father sent his son. Herein is love. And it is indeed all the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. It's staggering. You see, I have a son. I have two sons. My eldest is Joshua, who's 14. My youngest is Liam, who's six. And just a few weeks ago, we were on holiday. This, this picture came up on my Facebook memories. It was taken on the 28th of September, 2009. And as the picture came up, it, it just brought back so many memories to me. Because this was the night before Josh had to have heart surgery at the Royal Children's Hospital in Bristol, United Kingdom and we was having his dinner. Good quality dinner, that. <laughs> and then afterwards, I was settling him down for the night. Emma had taken the other children home. See, when Josh was born, he, he, he was quite a sick kid. He was born, and we found out quite quickly he only had one kidney that was really working properly. And then as he developed, it became clear that, man, he's, he's really not saying too much. And they discovered that actually, yeah, he's got a cleft palate. He's got an internal submucous cleft palate. And so all the muscles in his mouth, instead of running sideways, they're running front to back. And so they would need to operate and go in his mouth and basically cut from behind his teeth back down his throat and change all the muscles around. And so when he was three, I I took him in for his first operation to have that done. And the day before, we had that operation they said hey we're just going to have to check his heart because sometimes when kids have a cleft palate they have heart problems but don't worry about it I'm sure he won't And so they started doing the scans on his heart and everything just went real quiet and you know that's a bad sign as a dad and they said yeah um, look I'm very sorry Mr and Mrs Taylor but he's actually got two holes in his heart as well so we took Josh in for his first operation when he was three And then we took him in for another operation when he was five. And this happened when my big boy was seven. And if there's one thing I learned the night before my son's surgeries, it's how much I love him. Because I would have done anything in that moment. I would have done anything to, to spare him what was coming the next day. Every time. I would have done anything to to spare him any pain. And each and every time, although I consistently feel a love for each of my children, there's nothing like an operation to, to bring it into sharp focus, how you feel about that kid. And yet here's the reality. I love my son so much the lie of love for my son is only a dim reflection of the Father's love for his son. It is a dim, a dim reflection of how God the Father feels about his son. See, in chapter 1, when Jesus is getting baptised and, and the dove comes from heaven and lays on Jesus, showing that he is the Messiah, God the Father breaks in from the heavens. He rips apart the skies. It's like he just can't wait to be in on the act. And he declares, this is my beloved son. Because he wants to let us know how he feels about him. This is my beloved son. This is my much loved only son. We see it again in the transfiguration. When God again breaks in from the heavens, hey, this is my beloved son. This is my much-loved son. Listen to him. And now Jesus, the son, as he's standing before the Pharisees and the elders and the scribes, tells us a story where once again he refers to himself as being the beloved son. Mark wants to help us see how the father, thinks about the son, how the father feels towards the son. I love my son. But it is only a dim reflection of the father's love for his son. And yet, when the time was right, the father, the landowner, sent his son. so that we may have life. My friends, don't miss this. Because herein is love. And it is all the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Isn't it incredible? The love of the Father is so evidently on display, right here in verse 6. But also what is on display is the love of the Son a love that in truth has been displayed throughout this gospel and throughout all of the gospels. It was displayed when the Son takes on flesh and is born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. For all eternity past, he's had perfect unity and love with his Father. He's been with his Father throughout all eternity. They created together mankind as an overflow of their love and affection for one another. And yet it was his time. It was his time to come on the greatest rescue mission ever told. The landowner wants to send him to the vineyard to give his life as a way as a ransom for many. And Jesus, because of his love for the vineyard, gladly and willingly came. We see the love of the, of the son's love for you and the way that he is tempted by Satan in the wilderness and that never gives in. Satan is bombarding him with very real and genuine temptations, and yet Jesus doesn't give in to any of them. We see it then when he's training and teaching these disciples, knowing that the church is going to be built on the back of these disciples. How disappointing it must have been when he realizes time and time again, these guys just don't get it. And yet he sticks with them, and he keeps training them, Because he's aware these men will be the ground and foundation of the church. The church that now we're a part of. And we see his love for us when he gets on the back of a donkey, enters Jerusalem in loneliness with no one recognizing who he is. Goes into a temple where surely he should have been received with fanfare, but no one's there. And we see it in this moment when he goes toe-to-toe with the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees, knowing that humanly speaking, these are the men that will kill him in just three days' time. And yet he provokes them intentionally, nonetheless, with a parable, in effect, and ironically, that would bring about his death. My friends, herein is love, and it's the Lord's doing. And it should be marvellous in our eyes. Friends, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Saviour. If that's you, thank you so much for coming. I'm genuinely so honoured and pleased that you would be here. Maybe somebody's brought you along, maybe you've just dropped in yourself, and you're inquisitive and you're wondering what this is really about. Well, listen, this parable is talking and addressed to you. Because this parable teaches you of the incredible and personal love of the Father and the Son for you. And yet what this parable also teaches you is that if you don't respond to his love, that just like the tenants, you will be judged. And you will be destroyed at the hand of God. And I plead with you Don't let that happen to you. See, this landowner isn't just the originator and creator of the vineyard. This landowner is the creator of all things. He's the one that created the sun and the stars and the land and the sea. He's the creator of all things. He's the one that created you, who knitted you together in your mother's womb. And he designed you just like he designed all of mankind to find your identity and your joy and your purpose in him. Something he loved and longed to give you. And yet, just like the rest of mankind, you and I, just like everybody else, has exchanged the landowner for the land. You've snubbed the landowner. I want to find our identity or joy in him. I want to find my identity or joy in the land, in this world, in all that it has to offer. If it feels right, it must be right. And I'm loving the world. And maybe over time, he sent many servants to you to help you see the consequences of that. Maybe he sent servants to you to help you see that in actual fact, you're just like the tenants. Your story may be different, but you're just like them and you're God-defying, you're God-not-honoring, you're not interested in following him, you're doing your own thing. Maybe he sent you servants prior to now to help you see that reality yet more importantly, when the time was right, God in his grace sent forth his son for you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. At the right time, God sent his son into the world to die on the cross in our place. And in doing so, he made it possible that if we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we could know the landowner again. We could know the joy of the landowner's joy. Know what it is to be forgiven by him, to be adopted by him, to know that we'll be with this glorious landowner for all eternity and we will escape the punishment of the tenants. My friends, I put before you then this day life and death. And I urge you and plead with you, choose life. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that anyone, anyone, no matter what you've done and who you are, who believes in him, who truly bows the knee and put their faith in him, will not perish but have eternal life. If you're an unbeliever, become a believer today and know this life. If you are, though, a believer, you are a Christian. I really sincerely pray that you would know of his incredible and personal love to you today. Because it's all throughout this parable. The incredible love of the Father and the incredible Son of the love personalised to you. So I urge you then, my friends, live in the good of it. Know it. Feel it. Trust it. Be assured by it. For as sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. That's life. And we can be tempted in those moments to think, where has God gone? What is he doing? Maybe he doesn't feel about me the way I thought he did. Oh yeah, he does. Oh yeah, he definitely does. Here's how he feels about you. At The right time, he sent forth his son for you. And his son gladly and willingly came for you. Fact. So live in the good of his incredible and personal love for you. It's real. Know it. Delight in it. Treasure it. And would he then be the apple of your eye. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, how kind you are in the midst of our lives to slow us down and pause us to remind us of your incredible and personal love for us. Lord, would we not overlook too quickly the significance of this parable in its timing and audience and content? More importantly, would we not overlook the love that is contained within it? Lord, it's staggering that while we were still sinners, you sent forth your Son for us. Lord, did we not go through the motions then in our lives of singing songs because we should, serving you because we should? No, would we go through our lives amazed that you love me? You called me and compelled by that love, and delighting in that love, would we live for you. Because you're worthy of it, Lord. You are our King. And how deep your love is for us. Amen. The incredible and personal love of the Father,